obviously with uh, spring break, I knew we'd uh, have some people uh, missing in action. Uh, from the Plano State, we had uh, 134 kids leave this morning for Nauvoo. Uh, and should be having a, a great experience there, being led by uh, President Jones. So, that'll be fun. Uh, all right, what did you learn this week? Anything new? Anything exciting? Any mission calls? Quiet week. Okay, I thought I picked up a couple of things in the news, uh, things that uh, kind of attracted my attention. Uh, and I just think that this is one of those things where you look at the fact that if you watch the news carefully, the uh, our pre-existence experience exists in all people all over the world, whether they're members of the church or not. And you watch them. It influences the way that they worship and the things that they do and the beliefs that they have. And so whenever I see things in the news that just kind of jump out at me, I go, oh, there's another one. That's kind of fascinating. Um, so here was one uh, coming out of France. Sorry, a story out of France. Uh, ancient lore has suggested that the Vikings used special crystals to find their way under less than sunny skies. Though none of these so-called sunstones have ever been found in Viking archaeological sites, a crystal uncovered in a British shipwreck could prove that they did indeed exist. And, and apparently these, these crystals, the best understanding they have is if you looked at somebody's face through a clear chunk of Icelandic spar, you see two faces. But a chemical analysis confirmed that the stone was an island, Icelandic spar that they found, believed to be the uh, Vikings' mineral of choice in these sunstones. Because of the shape of these calcite crystals, they reflect or polarize light in such a way to create a double image. This means if you're looking at somebody's face, uh, you'd see two faces. But if the crystal is held at just the right position, the double image becomes a single image, and you know the crystal is pointing east-west. That's kind of interesting. That brings up possibilities, doesn't it? Uh, for instance, you think about uh, the uh, Liahona with two spindles. Maybe it was the kind of thing that just pointed in the right direction and suddenly it becomes clear from the point in the right direction. He does. He does. Or at the very least, there was a least an understanding. Just the idea, if you take a step back and say, there is an understanding that the Vikings traveled long distances across the ocean following a, a light from a crystal. That ought to be plenty, shouldn't it? Okay, it's just one of those things you go, okay, I, I get it, that's kind of fun, and it might have looked something like There's that. something else, too, that they were saying, if you held that crystal up on a foggy day and you couldn't see the sun, if you go like this with a crystal, and when he, when he hit the sun, the crystal would light up. Yes. the clouds. So they knew that was the... Uh, and that, that would lead them, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And uh, anyway, they've been looking. They think they have found one of them on a, uh, on a uh, Elizabethan ship. Uh, and then they also used it to double-check their compass. So I think that's interesting, too. It, it is on. <laughs> Thanks for checking. Okay, so there's story number one. Yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt. I just lost something. Um, 
Brand new, brand new chapel in Abu Dhabi. Story number two, out of India, the world's biggest religious festival concluded on Sunday with nearly two million pilgrims taking a dip in an Indian holy river that washed away the sins of 120 million in the last 60 days. There's a belief that when these holy men take a dip in the river, that it helps, it cleanses others, and so we had about two million holy men uh, coming together on about five holy sites in India and reaching out potentially to 120 million and, and curing them. Okay? You probably hit the heat on again. I know it goes back and forth. I feel it getting cold again, which for me, if it's cold, you guys are freezing. The Punga celebrated every 12 years of the con- conjunction of two sacred rivers at the outskirts of the northern. Indian city of Allahabad drew massive crowds of devotees, aesthetics, and foreign tourists. And the two-month festival ended, uh, celebrated across India and Nepal. Um, and again, the festival on Sunday, the last batch of holy men embarked by plunging into the river Ganges. Uh, I just fascinated. And if you, and there's actually pictures if, if you get this, where they are firing from like water cannons. Uh, holy water out there, but again, you get this sense, and I think two things are interesting, it's going to go right into what we're talking about today, and it is a sense that water cleanses sins, and that the actions of the holy man can actually reach out and cleanse others almost vicariously. That's what he come. Now, talking about that kind of tradition being passed down uh, is just fascinating. Okay. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah. There was even a better picture of, uh, and we'll talk about this in a second. I had a great picture that I, I couldn't use of the holy man actually plunging into the river for that for that cleansing process because they do it. Now, even when I tried to edit it, it's like, nah, we'll just go with this one. Okay. Well, they are. And and the funny thing is, hold on to the idea of naked because it's about to come up again. Really? Yes. Okay. Now, we had, uh, in talking uh, about uh, events historically in Nauvoo last week, uh, we never even plunged into section 124, uh, which we probably ought to. And uh, we're actually going to get a lot there. Uh, So I want you to put these two kind of pictures in your mind. The first being one out of one of our baptismal fonts, and then the other one, a depiction of the... uh, the labor, the, the molten sea that existed in uh, Solomon's temple. And I've actually, and this is the version that we have of it in, 
in the, the tabernacle in the wilderness. <coughs> Same kind of thing. So let's let's turn, if we can, to section 124. Uh, let's go to verse 26. Okay, so here come here comes the cry. Um, Send ye swift messengers, yea, chosen messengers, and say unto them, Come ye with all your gold and your silver and your precious stones, with all your uh, antiquities, and with all those who have knowledge of antiquities, who will come, who that will come, may come, and bring the box tree and the fir tree and the pine tree together with all the precious trees on the earth. By the way, in the new version of the uh, scriptures that just came out, just released last week, uh, one of the little minor changes is that they removed the hyphens out of this verse. Okay? And with iron and with copper and with brass and zinc and all your precious things of the earth and build a house to my name for for the Most High to dwell therein. Okay, so what, what's this a call for? Come and build the temple and bring with you what? Your good stuff. It is, and it's similar to Moses and it's similar to uh, King Solomon. In other words, go out and find the finest things that are available to you and bring them forth so that you can then uh, build this house. And so, where did they find the uh, limestone? It was right there. The quarry was right, actually, alongside the Mississippi. Uh, where did they? Where did, how about the wood for use in the temple? No, Wisconsin. They sent uh, logging groups up the river, and they went up to Wisconsin and logged up in Wisconsin. And then they would bring uh, streams of logs down. Uh, it's one of those we know because it's one of those places that Joseph contemplated, uh, kind of uh, leading to hiding when he was kind of when they were going to issue warrants for his arrest. And there's a lot done in Wisconsin. It's one of the reasons why one of the large splinter groups after the prophet Joseph's death will go up to uh, Wisconsin, the town of Voorhees, uh, with uh, James Strange. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Bring your best stuff. In other words, let's, we're going to build this temple. Now, I find it fascinating. I don't have an answer for this. I actually tried to do some research back. I couldn't find anything. What would you guess he means by bring your antiquities and all those who have knowledge of antiquities? Could be. Or the ability maybe to, to work gold. And knowledge of antiquities. So we, we just want to carve to the best of our ability and create the best thing we know how to create. And there again, Moses started they were giving the knowledge between that was to work fine things Yeah. It is interesting that it, when we get to Salt Lake, what will happen is, is that uh, Brigham Young will send people out on missions uh, obviously to, to go convert souls 
But they also went out with an understanding that they wanted them to bring back a skill. Bring back knowledge, bring back understanding, bring back skills and trades that you can bring back to Deseret and teach others. So, so we might send you out uh, someone like uh, Minerva Tykart. We would send her out, we're going to send her to France, specifically to be able to go out and learn how to paint beautifully so that she can come back and supervise painting in the temples. Uh, and somebody else is going to go out and do silver working or, or uh, those kind of skills. Um, and I think, I think they, they were trying to do this. Okay? Now, so bring your iron, your copper, your brass, your zinc to build a house in my name for the most high to dwell therein. For there is not found a place that he may come to and what? That's fascinating to me. In other words, what, what we're about to reveal in this temple and as part of this work has been on the earth before and it's going to be revealed. In fact, when Joseph will send a letter to the brethren that are in England, he will say, I just need to let you know we've instituted baptism for the dead. Uh, and he says, I could speak a lot more on this subject and talk about it back in history, but I don't have sufficient room to do it, but just to let you know that we have instituted, and now people on this currently now can do work for those that have passed on. Uh, restore again that which was lost unto you or which was taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. And then he's going to say, for a baptismal font there is not upon the earth. For they, my saints, may be baptized for those that are dead, for this ordinance belongeth to my house. Okay, now let's, we need to take a couple of steps back because there's a, there's a, an interesting piece of symbolism that just kind of jumped out at me that I kind of missed uh, that, I, that I want to bring up. First of all, when we talk about, if we can, let's, let's review for a second the symbolism behind baptism. What, why, what is baptism supposed to symbolize? Okay, what you're about to see, you're about to see three or four or five different layers in what baptism is. It seems like a very, most, most divine symbols seem very simple, but when you start looking at it, there are going to be four or five layers here. And one of them we just talked about, the, the, the leaving behind of the natural man, and you're going to come up as a new, new creature in Christ. Okay, what else? I heard someone else say it over here. Birth and resurrection of Christ. Birth and resurrection of Christ. Now he's going to go down into the grave and he's going to come up new. And, and we're kind of symbolizing that. What else? Cleansing. Cleansing of really behind sins. Come up clean. That will happen with the Holy Ghost. What else? Another layer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's another layer, and it's an initiation into a new order. I'm going to leave behind this life together, and, and so it really becomes 
symbolic of, of my birth and resurrect, my own death, or my own resurrect, my birth and resurrection into a new life. Uh, in the uh, first century, particularly the Christians, it was not unusual in a lot of sects for them to baptize naked. Because it was going to be symbolic of this baby being coming up out of the womb and the and the womb of and the waters of the womb and come up clean. And as part of that, then they would then step out of the water clean, uh, and then they would be fed milk and honey, symbolic of breast milk, kind of a sweeter milk. In other words, you have literally been reborn, and you're going to come up. Yeah. It also symbolizes commitment. Yes. Because in the in the early days of the church, those that participated in the United Order were sometimes baptized in the United Order. One of the first things they did when they got into the um, Salt Lake Valley is that everybody was rebaptized. Kind of a recommitment. There is a change. In other words, I, 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 I'm one person before baptism. I go into the water. I come up as a, a completely different person. So you get this whole change that is occurring. Okay? So baptism is one of those, and we know from this process how critical baptism is that it's one of those saving ordinances. Okay, now let's come back to um, So then we get uh, the, the Temple of Solomon, as it was in the tabernacle, we're going to have the labor. And it was called the, the Molten Sea. And it's literally the baptismal, it's, it's this big font, and it's going to rest on the, on the backs of 12 oxen. Okay? Now, why? What's that, what's that going to symbolize? Okay, it's going to rest on 12 tribes. We've talked about the fact this even this itself has two layers. Because it is all 12 tribes, right? It is also specifically one tribe, Ephraim, whose symbol was, uh, was an oxen, going to the four corners of the earth. Okay? But let's take it right now as the 12 tribes, because it's true at that level as well. So... So now we have this in the Temple of Solomon. Here is this, here's this uh, big massive tank of water and it's resting on the oxen. What's the purpose of that? What was that there for? Could be. There was in a sense that they were reunited. What would they use it for? No, it wasn't for baptisms. This is the something that the priests, part of the ordinances in the prior to them actually uh, participating in these ordinances, the sacrificial animals and all those kind of things, is that the priests would then go to this labor and there was a way to, to access the, the water and they would, they would ritualistically be cleansed. They would be washed prior to doing the ordinances that they were going to do for Israel. So there was always a washing ahead. And, and then, of course, and that's combined. And who was getting washed? 
those are those that have been anointed to do it. So the, those that have now been washed and anointed can now perform the ordinance. Yeah, these were the these were the priests of Aaron that would be uh, anointed and then consistently washed before completing this. Okay. Now, interesting that they would do that. Why are we going to do this on the uh, out of uh, a font, a molten sea on the backs of oxen? What, is, what symbolically? What are they being taught? Do what? That's one of it. We're, this thing that we're going to happen, and there's the four principal directions, which means universal. That means this is going to have an effect worldwide. Yeah, and it's going to be work. Yes, and that's why they're going to have. Uh, they're going in all four directions. Part of that also was the fact that oxen were seen as royalty. It was a symbol of royalty. And so now what you get, that this process is going to create royalty in those that are scattered to the four corners. And also I love the fact that this thing sits on the backs. Uh, if something rests on your back, what does that mean? It's a responsibility. It rests on me. Remember when Joseph in, in uh, uh, March of 1844, just months before Prophet will uh, be killed. He will gather all of the twelve together. He will go back and reteach everything that he has taught them to that point. And finally, Wilfred Woodruff records, in that setting he said, now I have rolled the kingdom onto your shoulders. If you do not carry it forward, you will be damned. And now I can go to my rest. And I am liable to die as it Yeah. But what they had was this image of it resting on their shoulders. So I love the fact that the, the font sits on the, uh, their, their backs. And, then, and, if, and if you take it that one level deeper to Ephraim, the responsibility rests on your shoulders. It is the yoke that we carry to have to take it to the four corners, to, to find Israel everywhere and bring them home. Now, here, here's the part that really jumped out at me, though. And here's what I... And, and like I said, I spent some time looking at this, and I this is kind of weird. I wonder why this is. Where do we do our baptismal fonts? Underground. Yes, in fact, uh, for just a second, why don't you go to... Um, let's hop over for just a second to 128... 12 and 13. Somebody want to read that? Who's got, who's got 12? Uh-huh. Got it? Okay, thanks. Close. Keep going. Consequently, the baptismal font was instituted as a 
Okay, that okay, that's good. So where are we going to do the bat, our baptismal font? Underground. Okay, because it is symbolic of all of that. Now, even though we put our ba our baptism baptismal fonts for the dead in the basement, generally, look at the way that that's constructed. Is that constructed as a font? that we normally picture doing baptisms? No. We, they, they were specifically asked to build a baptismal font for the baptisms for the dead in a font that looked like what? The one in the Temple of Solomon. Was the one in the Temple of Solomon for baptisms for the dead? No. These priests that are going into the temple, have they already been baptized? Sure. True, but they have been. But there were there were fonts. The the poles of Solomon. There were fonts available to. So the priests were baptized. But every time they would go into the temple, they would go to this font to be washed and cleansed prior. So they weren't using this thing for baptism. They were using it for washings. Okay, ready? Here's the here's the dilemma. Why are we doing baptisms for the dead in a font designed for washings? Well, wait, we do do washings in the temple, but it's not in that. So let me ask you again. Why are we doing baptisms for the dead in a font designed to wash and cleanse sins? For? And? Who, get, who got washed? Who got washed in this font in the temple of Solomon? Yes, they were. In other words, that was a cleansing process for them prior to doing the ordinances. Who was being cleansed in that thing? It was the priest. They would because then they would then go in and they would do the that the uh, sacrifices on the altar, especially on the feast of atonement, to cleanse the sins for Israel. But in the process, who was cleansed in this first? The priests. See a connection? When we do baptisms for the dead, who's being who's being washed? We are. There's the there's the connection. Then we perform the ordinance. Who's receiving the blessing of that? The dead, because now they got their baptism. But the priests and priestesses that are doing those baptisms are being washed. In other words, what I believe this is teaching us is that baptisms for the dead are also a cleansing process for us. That we come out of that process more sanctified than we were prior to this.
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're trying we're trying to do a lot. Think about this on Wednesday. Yeah. Trying to do a lot of the final stake and trying to forge we've had the high priest groups involved in trying to provide the names for the youth to, to take to Nauvoo. What we're trying to do now is we're gonna try and carry that process forward in the next uh, next year or so especially to continue that process because we want the youth to be involved in church and family history to forge those links. But I also think that again in this process I just I think it's fascinating that the Lord is saying that the process by which we save will save us. Isn't that cool? Amazing, yeah. See that for what it is. It becomes pretty powerful. Michael Wilcox. The font rests securely on the, on the strong backs of 12 oxen. They represent the tribes of Israel and we belong to those tribes. It is totally appropriate that the font should be so situated. The saving ordinances for the world rest on the backs made strong by the blessings of the restoration. That weight will not be removed until every child of God is found. With our heads directed to the four points of the compass, we desire and invite all to receive the ordinances that open the sanctifying power of the atonement. I just, I, it's just an amazing thing. And we, and we in the process of that. That's one of the reasons why it is Someone said, if you're going to get a uh, patriarchal blessing, the patriarchal blessing that you got assigned you a tribe. And our, and, and our patriarch, uh, Lou Lauritsen, in, in our state says, you need to look at that more as an assignment. You are assigned to do the work of that tribe. And especially for those of us Ephraim. That's our assignment. Go find it. Go rescue it. And that rests on our backs constantly. All right. Now, that said, um, I love, there is a pattern. How do we do this? How do we carry this out? This, this responsibility that rests on us. Uh, by the way, uh, anybody ever had a, a calling? That when uh, you receive uh, the keys or the responsibility of that, you literally feel that kind of press down on you. You finally get released. You feel the pressure kind of come back uh, off of you, right? You know, we sense it, can't we? This kind of pressing down. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes we do. You're right. 
Okay, why don't, why don't you turn to uh, uh, verse 43 for a second. Because how do we carry this out? Because we're being asked in so many cases to, to do something that is... You ever receive a calling and you're just looking back at the, the bishop or the state president and you're going, are you nuts? Well, look at verse 43. And you shall build the temple on the place where you've contemplated building it. For it is, it is the spot I have chosen for you to build it. If you labor with all your might, I will consecrate that spot that it shall be made holy. There is a pattern there. First of all, the Lord does what? Chooses. Okay? Who's been chosen? Yeah, let, just a second. Let's flip back to... Um, I put in here... No, I'll just do it. Section 121. Just a reminder... Verse 34, Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. Yeah, why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much on the things of the world. We'll come back to that in a second. Okay, so I have chosen. So who's been chosen? We have, right? That's right. By virtue of... You, that, that baptismal process by virtue of your righteousness and the things that you did prior to this life, you became the noble and great. The Lord has chosen you in the furnace of affliction. Here you are. I have chosen you to build it. And if you labor with all your might, I will consecrate what? You. Yeah. In there. I will consecrate probably 44 by now. Did I get it wrong? Okay. I will cons I will consecrate that spot that it will be made holy. Okay? How are you consecrated? If he chose you and now you go forward and you're working and you're involved and maybe it's Maybe you're teaching CTRAs or Bs, or you're, maybe you're teaching the buzzards, you know, the, you know, the beehives. <laughs> How do you go from being chosen to consecrated? That's when you're chosen. I chose you. You were called, chosen. Now what? Well, now, of course, the actions you're actually consecrate something. To make it holy. To set it aside, right? 
Think about how many times though that you're going for it with your might and you're getting nothing. How many times you're teaching seminary, for instance, and the kids are sleeping all the way through your lessons and you go, is anything seeping in here? Or you're trying to do family home evenings and everybody's beating on each other during the whole thing and you're going, why do we even try? Or you spend a long time on a sacrament meeting talk and you stand up there and everybody, nobody's getting it. Or you have two minutes left. Yes. Think about all that we do sometimes in the church and the Lord says, all, I will choose you, I will call you, you're now chosen, you're set apart, you labor, and I will consecrate your efforts. Yeah. Yes, that, and there, there's the process, because once we've done that, we're, we're now going to be anointed to go forward, and then, the next step is, then you go in there and you're washed, and now you get to perform the ordinances for Israel. But that, but I called you, you called and chosen, okay? It's just amazing to me, though, how often, again, so many of the things... We just wonder, am I doing any good? I'm trying to teach my kids, and then they go off the reservation. Isn't that true? That somewhere in there it doesn't feel like work anymore. 
It just is, a, I'm, I'm glad to be there. It just flows. It's a naturalness. And maybe that's, maybe that's a dividing line. Where we have become consecrated, it no longer feels as much like a labor. It feels like love. And we weren't even aware that, that this, was this supposed to be hard? Or was this supposed to be a sacrifice? Really? It doesn't feel like it. And everybody else on the outside won't believe. I mean, sometimes people will say, gee, you spend a lot of time on your institute class. And I go, really? <laughs> that's more of a labor of love to me. You know, that's not anything that feels like a burden. Because we do it when we're doing what we love, even though it may be a sacrifice of time and other things. Kevin? Yeah. Before you leave this, would you comment on the, I think it's called the sunstone, that face? Oh, like yeah. In the middle. It, that's just always seemed kind of strange to me. That, oh, the, the sunstone on the Nauvoo Temple? Uh, I say that at the Smithsonian. Yeah, it's at the Smithsonian. There are two of the original ones at the Smithsonian. And then the other one there is just outside the visitor center. And you get this sunstone in the face. And the idea, if you look at that sunstone, you know which one I'm talking about? It's the face. It's the one that looks like from, almost like from World War II where Kilroy was here. And you get kind of this half face here. And then there, there are rays of light coming up. And you'll, and you'll see trumpets over the top of that. Right yeah, you can see. Oh, oh, there. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah, Kilroy. That's it. Oops. No, I can't see. Anyway. Yep. Yeah, um, and that there's the idea, and it's supposed to be the restoration. The gospel is being restored. That there's a new dawning on the earth of the of the new gospel, and and trumpets, angels are announcing it over there, and you get the rays of sunlight, uh, and kind of coming almost forth as a scroll because you'll see the, the thing kind of goes into the scroll. And so it's like the scroll is being opened. It's kind of like a seventh seal. Restoration. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, those sunstones are, uh, those are very cool. We, and we took efforts to kind of duplicate those on the new temple. Yeah. Easy. My burden is light. And when I like that, maybe that's the moment it becomes consecration. Also, it's like we're talking about it's it's a it's a labor of love, and it doesn't feel as heavy as it was. I, I like that better than. Okay. Let's see, we were just talking about called and chosen. Let's keep going. Um, now, part of this, if we're going to talk about this consecrating, choosing part, part of what happens in section 124 is that we're going to be introduced to a list of names of people that are all called and, uh, to be chosen. Names like Robert Thompson, Hiram Smith, John C. Bennett, Lyman White, William Law. Robert Foster, Vincent Knight, and I could go on and on and on. Okay, but I want to, I want to take just a second and, and go through some of these. Okay, well, that's cute. Okay, let me take. Um, oh, 
times and said, no wonder I'm not sinning, I'm in section 121. Hmm? Alright, here we go. Here's the first one. Verse 12. And again, these are almost like having little patriarchal blessings. And I think the value for us today is that if we know something about them and what's being said, you can watch this this uh, chosen and then the labor and then the consecration part. And you watch in, in terms of what they do with their labor, how the Lord consecrated their efforts. And then we can kind of relate that back to us. And again I say unto you, let my servant Robert B. Thompson. Let me tell you about Robert B. Thompson. Uh, gifted literary guy, uh, very faithful member of the church, uh, and he is he is uh, Robert Thompson is standing next to David W. Patton when he is martyred at uh, the Battle of Crooked River. Uh, he is he's a uh, very valiant member of the church, uh, valiant enough that when when we uh, when we built Nauvoo, and you saw pictures of last week of the red brick store, well, if you go just across the street from the red brick store and down about half a block, if you if you're in old Nauvoo, you'll see a a, a, a hole. There's a there's a there's an empty basement that sits there. That was the original site of the uh, Times and Seasons uh, newspaper. Now. If you've, been, if you've been in Nauvoo and you've watched the, the uh, typesetting process where they put the furniture, the little letters onto the little things, they got to, if they're going to put on a typeset, every, that entire page has to, letter by letter by letter by letter, have to be put on there until you've got a whole page full of these, uh, these wooden typeset. Okay? Well, that was a meticulous labor, and it just took forever to put that on there to get one page. Um, and very time intensive. In Nauvoo, uh, the time and season originally, in, the, in this first location, in that basement, uh, that typesetting was done by two men. Don Carlos Smith, uh, the prophet's younger brother, and Robert Thompson. They would work together trying to typeset everything that was going into times and seasons which their work on the times and seasons is why we have the book of Abraham today because they put the whole book of Abraham that we have in the times and seasons everything more that was in the book of Abraham was left with Emma Smith and we didn't get it only the stuff that was printed in the times and seasons so we are forever indebted to Robert Thompson along with Don Carl Smith for spending time so that we have what we have in the book of Abraham however what was Nauvoo like when they first got there? A swamp. A swamp. Everybody got malaria. In the case of Don Carlos and Robert Thompson, uh, they would work in that dank basement. Uh, they would they would die in August of 1841 within three weeks of each other, both with tuberculosis. Um, they're incredible sacrifice on their part. Yeah. At, at, they ended up moving the times and season over on more on the main street and off of uh, off of the road there. But um, Robert Thompson, though, was and here here's the cautionary tale for the rest of us: was a workaholic. 
and he would not stop. And at one time, Joseph said to him, half in jest, he wasn't really suggesting this, but get the spirit behind this. Brother Thompson, it's time for you to go have a spree and get drunk. <laughs> Take a break. Yeah. In other words, what he's saying to him, go do something fun. Go, and he said, have a spree. They do. And, but, then brother, but then Brother Jonah said, and if you don't, Brother Thompson, you will die. And Brother Thompson was dead in two weeks. Right after. And one of the, that was one of Joseph's big regrets, was that he had kind of called that to, to let him know. But it's just that sense of, he needed to take a break and he wouldn't take a break. And in his case, if he had taken a break and gotten up out of that basement, it might have saved his life. I say unto you, my servant Robert Thompson, help, help you write this proclamation. They were asked, they were being asked to write a proclamation to the world, to all the kings and, and, and presidents of the world to let them know that Nauvoo was here. We'll talk about that a little bit later. That, will, that won't happen in Joseph's lifetime. That happens in 1845. But Robert Thompson was asked to be part of that. Therefore, let him hearken to your counsel. He did. And, and what counsel did he not hearken to? Take a break. Have a spree. Take a break. I will bless him with a multiplicity of blessings. Let him be faithful and true in all things from henceforth, and he shall be great in my eyes. And he was. Here's another one. Hiram Smith. Blessed is my servant Hiram, for I, the Lord, love him because of the integrity of his heart. Let's hop down to verse 91 for just a second because I want you to see something happening with Hiram. And again, verily I say unto you, let my servant William Law be appointed, ordained, and anointed, appointed, ordained, and anointed as a counselor. In room for my servant Hiram, that my servant Hiram may take the office of priesthood and patriarch, which was appointed unto him by his father by blessing and also by right. This, this phrase caused uh, major problems. One of the reasons why we got the reorganized church. Because one of the things that was not completely clear, even at sometimes in Joseph's lifetime, is who would be his successor. And there was a belief in the Smith family that by right, that meant that literal lineage of Joseph would be, uh, that the patriarchal line would be the successor in the church. <coughs> Uh, and so they always believed it would be Joseph Smith III or William was another possibility. Do you have different lineage through the patriarchal blessings? 
Well, let's see. Um, there was a belief. Is it in here? No, it's not in here. Interestingly enough, Joseph believed that he was a direct he was a direct descendant of Joseph, of sold into Egypt. He was a pure Ephraimite, meaning that he could have directed his he could have found that lineage, and that they were as part of what they were talking about. But the patriarchal order at that point was father to son. And Joseph Smith Sr. had been patriarch until now it was going to fall to higher son. You know, that, 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 that's funny. You know, when we talk about that we are descendants, are all of us into, are, are we all, how many of Ephraim? Okay. Those of Ephraim, you know that you are of that descendancy, and the question is, are you a direct descendant, meaning, could you, could you do a genealogy? What if you were someone who wasn't a direct descendant of Ephraim? I don't want to make this too complicated. But you, you're adopted in. Joseph had said in Nauvoo that if you weren't of the tribe of Israel and you joined the church, that you became literally of that lineage. In some way, your lineage was changed. Yeah, so it didn't matter. Either way, you're going to be a direct with all the responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah, but Manasseh is a different assignment. Because that's the tribe that, that that's the that's the tribe they're assigned to with the responsibilities of Manasseh, which is interesting. In Manasseh, the assignment is to the descendants of Manasseh. We have any descendants of Manasseh in the church? The Lamanites. Yeah. So yeah. Presidency, 
and he's made and he's and he's called as the patriarch. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll research that. That, that. That's a good question, since so many of the Smiths stayed behind. Because um, Josephus, who was Hiram's son, was not. He was a prophet. He was never called as patriarch. So that's a good question. I don't know. But I want you. To, here's something that I do want you to see, and I think this is kind of important. Again, patriarchal thing to Hiram. Let my servant William Law. We'll talk about him in just a second. Counselor to my servant. Joseph, in the, in the room, my servant Hiram. Hiram will take the office of the priesthood and patriarch, that from henceforth he'll hold the keys of the patriarchal blessings on the head of the people. Uh, 94, from this time forth, he may be a prophet, a seer, and a revelator. Okay? Now, listen closely here. That he may act in concert with my servant Joseph, and that he shall receive counsel from my servant Joseph, and he will show unto him the keys whereby he may ask and receive and be crowned with the same blessing and glory and honor and priesthood and the gifts of the priesthood that were once put on him that was my servant Oliver Cowdery. Now, now you know why it is that so many within of, of church leadership have always suggested that if Oliver Cowdery had not apostatized, it would have been Oliver with Joseph in, in Carthage Jail. Uh-huh. Verse 95. That as part of that, that he would be the other witness he would be, that would testify uh, to their, their calling with their blood. Right? All right. Um, I don't want to saturate ourselves too much with uh, the history of all these people because we're going to kind of touch on them again in just a second. But I wanted to... Um, okay, we have a couple more mini patriarchal blessings. John C. Bennett, who I've listed there as Joseph Judas... Yeah, this is verse 16. Let my servant John C. Bennett help you in your labor in sending my word to kings and people on the earth and stand by you, even you, my servant Joseph Smith, in an hour of affliction, and his reward shall not fail if, what? You receive counsel. John C. Bennett was uh, first mayor of Nauvoo. He was... Uh, he assisted in the First Presidency. Uh, he was instrumental in bringing, uh, connecting the Masons. Uh, he was instrumental in making sure that Nauvoo had a city charter, that we got the Nauvoo Legion, the University of Nauvoo. Uh, he was our emissary with the, with the Illinois government for all the, the writ of habeas corpus that on numerous cases kept Joseph from being hauled back to Missouri. Uh, John C. Bennett is also, when he apostatized and started uh, hitting up women in Nauvoo and told them that it was in Joseph's name that it was all right that we have affairs because uh, it would be okay if Joseph would be all right with this, and Joseph called him on it, and he apostatizes, he will then run 
around the country stirring and fomenting things, eventually writing a book, and he will stir things enough. He's a, he is a major player in Joseph's murder. All because he would not accept counsel. Because he became prideful unto himself. Um, Eighteen. Uh, I, it is my will that my servant Lyman White, here's another one that is called, should continue in preaching in the spirit of meekness. Unfortunately, Lyman White did not know the meaning of the word likeness. Meekness. He couldn't figure that one out. He was, uh, the Joseph called him the wild ram of the, of the wilderness. Wild ram of the, wild ram of the something. That's when, as we talked about before, Joseph will send him on a mission in, in early in 1844. Uh, Joseph was a bit enamored with David Crockett uh, and, and the fall of the Alamo. And the Republic of Texas is now in place. And he will send Lyman White on a mission to Texas to see about the possibility of got to leave Melbourne that will move to Texas. Lyman White will come down here and never leave. Refuse to come back even when Joseph even when Brigham Young repeatedly, John Taylor asks, uh, Wilfred Woodruff asks him to come to Salt Lake and he never would because I'm still on the mission I got from Joseph Smith. And so, and this is just outside uh, Pflugerville, I think. Yes. Yeah, he'll, be, he'll finally have to be excommunicated. Verse 20. Zodiac is a bit, yeah, is the actual name that they called it. Is it still called that? There's a, you can find a, uh, <coughs> there's a marker down there. There's no, there's no town in Zodiac. George Miller um, is a man without guile. He can be trusted because of the integrity of his heart. Therefore, he will be called as presiding bishop. And, and you kind of go... Well, anyway. Rather than take too much time, I've gone through and tried to identify a number of these. Uh, Vincent Knight, he will, only, he will only live about another 18 months after this. But, okay. In the time that I've got to remain, I, I want to. The, there's another salient point that really kind of jumps out of the section 124. And it's actually contained. Let's go to verse 22 for a second. You're going to wonder. This doesn't quite look like the Nauvoo house, does it? What, what, what is that? It's, it's the old. Hotel Utah, now known as the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. Uh, th this will be ultimately, in my mind, the Nauvoo House. It's one of the reasons why my favorite place down there, uh, on the other side, the little Nauvoo Cafe that sits at the bottom of the Joseph Smith Building these days. Ooh, that is awesome stuff. Okay, so let's go to verse 22. 
So here they're gathering at Nauvoo. And Joseph, and, and so here comes this revelation to Joseph and, and says, Let my servant George Miller, my servant Lyman White, my servant John Snyder and others, build a house unto my name, such as one as my servant Joseph shall show unto them the place he shall show unto them also. And listen to this, it shall be a house for what? So we're not talking about the temple. We're talking about the Nauvoo house. And it sat right there uh, across, across the road on the other side of the street from the original Joseph Smith. It's still there. Uh, it shall be a house for boarding, a house that strangers may come from afar to lodge therein. So before he even asks them to build a temple, he's asking them to build a hotel. Well, that's odd, isn't it? The first thing that they'd ask is build a hotel. Well, there you go. Therefore, let it be a good house, worthy of all acceptation. Now, it has some specific guidelines to it. That the weary traveler may find health and safety while he shall contemplate the word of the Lord and the cornerstone I have appointed unto Zion. This house shall be a healthful habitation if it be built unto my name. If the governor shall, which shall be appointed unto it shall not suffer any pollution to come upon it. So tell me why it is that he would want to build a hotel about as fast as they built the temple. And what do they mean by pollution? Sure. Part of this is missionary work. What does it say about hospitality within the church? It's important. Yeah, you guys get that? You've got to take care of temporal needs. You've got to take care of them. And in fact, if, if you look, I, I've linked this. This is so important. This is repeated twice in section 124. I want to make sure that you get it. So uh, across 22 there I put. So go to verse 60. So kind of, let's reel down to verse 60. And let the name of that house be called the Nauvoo house. Let it be a delightful habitation for man, a resting place for the weary traveler, that he may contemplate the glory of Zion and the glory of this, the cornerstone thereof. Okay? Um, those who have been to Nauvoo, was the Nauvoo house completed? No, not in Joseph's lifetime. It was sort of completed. That's where Emma... And uh, Colonel Binmonton, that she will marry after Joseph, uh, will live for quite a while. Uh, they, they will end up making it a place for people to come visit. I noticed, I went on the uh, Community of Christ website, the old reorganized church, and, and uh, they will take large groups into the Nauvoo House, like you could have a big family reunion or something. But it isn't really set up to be the luxurious thing that it was designed to be. I think in my mind, that's why I have a picture of the Hotel Utah. The Hotel Utah, uh, dedicated in the early 1900s, was what the Nauvoo House was supposed to be. 
right across the street from the temple so that people could come from all over the globe, stay in, in luxury, and contemplate the word of the Lord the best that they knew how to, to build, to make this uh, the finest hotel. used to be the finest hotel west of the Mississippi for years and years. Okay? And if you've, if you've been to the recently to uh, what is now the Joseph Smith Memorial Building, and you walk in and you see the, the, the pillars and the marble, you can see the kind of the, the luxury that this thing was, so that people could come and be impressed. And say, this is a comfortable, wonderful place to, to then look across the street, and there's the temple. Okay? Kind of did. It's like the best. The best we know how to build uh, in there. Okay? Now, but I think there's a, there's a specific thing that just jumped out at me when I was looking at this. Because there's a phrase that's, a, that's going to be used here. And whenever I see a peculiar phrase like this, you have to look at it and go... Why would they use that phrase? What is that? And then try and find the other times that these phrases show up. Because then you get the full import of what the Lord is really trying to say here. And there's a hidden little message. Look very closely. Okay? He's talking about the fact that it'll be called the Nauvoo House, delightful habitation, and then that he, this weary traveler that's going to come and be in Zion and stay in this Nauvoo house or stay at the, at the Hotel Utah, uh, that they may also receive also the counsel from those whom I have said to be, and here's the phrase, plants of renown and as watchmen upon her wall. Fascinating phrase that that we would be called those that live in Zion that may have visitors among us, and that to me that that applies to sacrament meeting as well as it does Zion. That when somebody comes, when an investigator comes to your ward to visit, they are literally sitting among plants of renown. The Lord has called you. Odd phrase, right? What does it mean to be a plant of renown? Well, I had to go. I had to go digging to go find it, and I think it's worth going to. Why don't you come with me to Isaiah sixty-one three? And I need you to see this in the full context, and then you're going to understand who you are. 61? Three. One through three, actually. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. Who does that sound like? Yeah, it's Him, it's also those of us who would be Christ-like, that would take on that yoke. Those of us for whom the, the burden, the labor, the, the molten sea is resting on our backs. 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and, and the day of vengeance of our God, and then listen closely, to comfort all that mourn and to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. Think for a minute of Nauvoo. How many that were living in Nauvoo had mourned? Think about everything we've gone through in Missouri. These are people that have gone through the furnace of affliction. They have mourned. To give unto them, now that they've been gathered in, and you've been gathered, you were out there when you joined the church, you went through the waters of baptism, now you were gathered in. But you're, but you're being taken from places where you were mourning. To give unto them that arrived in Zion beauty for ashes. Instead of ashes and sackcloth, you're going to be dressed in what? Garments of light. And being taken to a place where you can be dressed in garments of light and covered with, with the atonement. The oil of joy for mourning. The oil, traditionally, when you mourn in Israel, there was a time and a season when you finally finished mourning and you would be anointed with oil for joy to say you have made it through that period of mourning. It's now passed and now you take all that experience as you move forward and you give gratitude and joy. And you receive an anointing of that. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that these people who have gone through mourning, who have gone through affliction, that you will be called trees of righteousness and the planting that they might be glorified. Now, who are, the, who are those that have been planted in, in Zion? Who specifically, who is he saying, are these trees of righteousness? Us, but especially who of us? Those who have, have been anointed because of what? Anointed with joy. Why? Clothed. Why? Because we mourned. This is literally talking about those who have mourned. Those that have gone through hard times. Those that have gone through pain. Those that have gone through struggle. And he says, I will bring you into Zion. I will put clothes on you. I will anoint you with the oil of joy. I will take away, instead of that heaviness I will, uh, and weariness, I will anoint you with the oil of joy and your mourning will finally come to me. And in fact, not only that, I will plant you in a place where, you, where the weary traveler can find you who formerly mourned 
and being in a place where they can contemplate the word of the God from somebody who has been through the furnace of affliction. And that's you. That's why you are plants of romance. Yeah. coming in will will come from those who are plants of renown who have been through your own mourning and your seasons of affliction and struggle and now you have the ability to say God is good I've now been anointed with the oil of joy yeah It is. It is. The, all these people, they shall build up old wastes. They will raise up former desolations. They will repair the cities. And, and they will be named the priests of the Lord. Priests and priestesses. That's who you are. So when, so when we go back here and we look at um, that these travelers may receive counsel from those I have set up to be plants of renown as watchmen upon her walls. I do find it fascinating, one other little side thing, that Isaiah is also referring to the fact that, that uh, the ones being scattered specifically is going to be Judah. That's one of those tribes that needs to find this with you have. But, but in general, it's Israel. And our job is to bring people together. Not because, brothers and sisters, we've lived perfect lives. And not because we've done everything right. And not because we haven't gone through pain and made mistakes and, and follies and done dumb things. He says, I know that. And I know that you wish you'd done things differently. And I know you don't consider yourself to be the greatest parent walking on the face of the earth. But nevertheless, I will make you a tree of righteousness and a plant of renown. And what you have, the world needs. And they need to be able to come into your midst and see who you are. Because of what you've been through. Because of what you've overcome. Makes you who you are. And he says, and I have planted you. Who planted you? He did. And then they can contemplate the word of the Lord through you. Not because of your perfection, but because of your survivorship. 
I just think it's, it's, it's the Lord knows what he's doing. And when you look at these historical things going on, you can say, the Nauvoo house doesn't, why would it be important for me to know anything about that? Your house, brothers and sisters, is the Nauvoo house. It may not be perfectly clean or straightened up, but it is a place where plants of renown exist and somebody could come in your midst and lesson, a missionary lesson could be taught in your home. And they could contemplate the word of the Lord in a place that is reserved, consecrated, set apart from the rest of the world because of this. And especially because of what Bear in my testimony that the Lord intends for us to be able to get, to be able to share this with the world. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Great spring break.